The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The Glenn Beck Program. The Commerce Department revealed that the citizenship question would be added to the 2020 census. And California lawmakers lit up. This is an attempt to nullify the advantage that progressive lawmakers by allowing and encouraging people to break the law. And the battle between California and the Trump administration is just beginning to heat up. We might end up being better off in the long run if Trump does extend his wall to include California. The Glenn Beck Program. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another week, another episode of Reform This. The 100th episode. The 100th episode. If it's your first episode, I hope you stick with me for another 100. If it's If you've been here before, Help me in celebrating 100 episodes with Blaze Radio with the wonderful staff at uh, uh, Glenn Beck's uh, program and uh, his uh, my fellow podcasters with Blaze Radio and uh, just the, the unbelievable first-class operation that Glenn runs. And uh, whether you listen to me on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you do, whatever you're doing, wherever you're walking, running, driving, thank you for being a part of what I think are the ideas that will begin to set us on the right path towards reform as Muslims and Americans towards a national strategy that engages our allies, that engages us in progress towards finding our allies on the ground and not just band-aids and not just a whack-a-mole program, but actually begins to have a long-term approach to actually beginning to defeat jihad. As, and as has so many people have said, this is a generational pro- process. And yes, it sounds long and it can be something you throw your hands up at. But at the end of the day, not only the trite saying of every journey starts in the first few steps, but ultimately, if you don't want your sons and daughters fighting wars in Pakistan, in India, in Indonesia, or where they are today in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, they could be tomorrow in Northern Africa, Algeria, M- Mali, on and on what's common in all those places interpretations of islam dominate that are still draconian that are still medieval that need reform we live in a lap of luxury in the lap of liberty and freedom and it is i believe incumbent on us muslims to lead that reform so thank you for being with me for 100 episodes thank you for trusting me engaging me in conversation I hope in the next 100 episodes to begin to bring you some guests, some conversation that we can have here on this podcast, um, and begin to dive deeper. Over the last 100 episodes, you and I have talked about Quranic interpretations, have talked about foreign policy strategy in the Middle East, and Syria, and Iraq, and Israel, and elsewhere. We have engaged what are the frontline issues, the top 10 issues, if you will, of Islamic reform? At the top are women's rights, apostasy laws, freedom of expression, free speech, the fact that Islamophobia is a term that should be put in the dustbin of history, identity of Muslims as Americans. And to that point, last week we talked about the, the unbelievable triggering that happened at Duke University. So I'd like to begin today 
in this 100th episode by looking back at what happened last week when I went to Duke University. The, uh, the courageous leaders at the uh, Duke College Republicans, Duke Political Union, uh, the Duke Young Americans for Liberty continued to, to strive forward. They went forward to continue my presentation as I had named it, the American Muslim Identity, Patriot versus Insurgent, um, and stood withstood the, the unbelievably propagandistic backlash that came back. And uh, among the things that the newspaper in an unsigned editorial uh, and uh, other stories wrote was, it's they said, um, The group also said that Jash's support of discriminatory surveillance against American Muslim communities treats all Muslims as potential would-be terrorists. No quote. No quote from me at all. Just fabricated information. Um, and for those of you who know my opinions, know that we supported the New York Police Department's mapping of the Muslim community, but no surveillance uh, uh, that would require any anything but looking at their public footprint which is necessary as we do at gangs and other and other types of uh, 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 neighborhoods and communities that might need uh, more awareness by the police of what's happening in those neighborhoods and they go on to say that I am somehow dehumanizing, that I am somehow bringing hate, fear, and mongering. Now, a few days after the event, we don't see any of that happened. Despite four completely negative stories and attacks on my character, on my integrity, on my credibility, on my honesty in addressing the issues, they then, to their credit... To their credit, the Duke Chronicle reviewed my talk, reviewed the opinions that I brought to their university, and they were pretty fair. In their, in their review, they said, American Muslim identity, and then they quoted me, they said, they don't want you to criticize Islam. Controversial speaker Zudi Jasser talks about combating Islamism. And then they go on, and actually what was a very... I think now, I thought it was balanced. Now, I didn't agree with all of what they wrote about it, but bottom line, it was more balanced. They said, after days of controversy, a location change and counter-protest, Zudi Jasser visited Duke to give a talk about Islam. And despite fears of a protest that necessitated five security guards at the event, the talk proceeded smoothly. Talked about my background, and it talked about me saying, ideas don't have rights, human beings do. They call it Islamophobia because they don't want you to criticize Islam. And I discussed how Islam is over 1,400 years old, but there have been over 500 years of stagnation of Islamic thought. This period has seen the rise of political Islam, the belief that Muslim-majority countries should be governed based on Sharia or Islamic law. And I spoke staunchly against Islamism. And then it goes on pretty fairly. And it says, I'm a doctor. I don't treat coughs and pains. I treat disease. And to him, the disease that leads to terrorism is theocracy. They got the message. This is what we wanted. What is the harm? What is the disease and pestilence that came from me discussing on campus, a campus where students are learned to think critically, to begin to change their method of approaching issues, the lenses that they use to look at things. As I talked to Dennis Prager this week, he's like, Zudi, what, what was up? What was the controversy? 
in today's universities, the far left uses us as an identity politic. The far left loves to make journalism about us before we get there about the messenger, not about the ideas. And it was just unbelievable, the tyranny of identity politics, the tyranny. And as the students who were there, and you can see the video, go to my Facebook page, MZ Jasser, and look at the entire talk. See what was so controversial. Yes, even the Duke Chronicle said, I blame the American imams and mosque culture for radicalizing Muslims. He said there's a real civil rights movement within mosques right now where nonviolent Islamism teachings often lead to violent Islamism. He added that to stop anti-Islamic bigotry in the West, the world needs to see Muslims that live in the lab of freedom working to reform their own faith. And I showed, for those who think I'm all about hate and mongering, which is what the precursor to my visit said I showed a picture of the mosque in Quebec where six Muslims were shot dead in a true act of anti-Muslim bigotry a terrorism upon a mosque in Quebec I said the best way to counter this hate to what extent exists I believe it's exaggerated now there's no doubt that there have been acts of hate and bigotry against Muslims not against Islam but against Muslims Islam is an idea the best way to counter that is for Americans, for Westerners, to see us being the most important asset in countering the precursors, the underbelly of ideas that feeds this. And this is what I talk to the students about. So all I can tell you is what I learned, and, and I hope you get out of this conversation, is we need to take back, we need to take back the mantles of debate, of criticism, of academic rigor and what it means to have balanced thought in our universities and we need to start to chip away at the collectivism of identity politics and how tyrannical the tyranny of the mind that results when our youth are told that their identity is skin deep their identity is about somehow all of a sudden islam becomes racialized being muslim becomes a race it's not a race it's an idea there are some conservative, there are some liberal, there are some fundamentalists, there are some secular. There are so many different ways to pigeonhole what Muslims describe themselves as. And yet, what I told the MSA when they asked me, they said, there were a couple there that were apparently Muslim and provided uh, questions in which they said, we're members of the MSA and you called us Islamist. How do you know that we're Islamists? You've never even talked to us, and yet you've labeled us as Islamists. And my response, you can see it online, was that Islamism is a political ideology. I can tell, by the way, for example, if I'm a free market guy, I can tell, by the way, some people respond to my free market ideas that they're socialists. And I would call them socialists based on their desire to push governmental programs, entitlement programs, and to talk about the threat of capitalism, etc. Islamists are those who will target messengers who are anti-Islamists and not deal with our ideas. So check the box that you targeted the messenger and you didn't target my ideas. Check the box that you, you openly said that you will never acknowledge the connection of nonviolent Islamism to Islamism. Ding, ding, ding. That's, that's a sign of an Islamist. Third, I looked all over your work, your commentary, whatever you've written, uh, editorials that you've submitted and it's all about victimology it's all about woe is us the problems of america problems foreign policy nowhere 
does it talk about the fact that of what I talked about in my speech, which was the fact that the American Muslim identity needs to lead with a contrition that it's time to reform, with a contrition that we have really been woefully in denial of the connection of what we need to do to bring the Madisonian, Jeffersonian ideas of that wall of separation to the concept of what it means to be Muslim. So your worldview ignores the Hamases, ignores the the Muslim Brotherhood. I couldn't find anything negative about the Muslim Brotherhood in their work. So yes, it was very easy for me to say that you're an Islamist. And by the way, I told them, I actually for a few months was a vice president of the Muslim Student Association in, at the University of Wisconsin. So I know maybe it's 30 years old, but at that time, 30 years ago, they had the same behaviors. They politicized everything, even including an international food day in which they went into uh, uh, combat mode against the Jewish Student Union because they wanted hummus and baklava to be Arabic and not Jewish. So that was a little taste of what I talked to the Duke University students about. And every time you go to the universities, you see that this is the future of America. This is our youth. And you realize that we need to be more engaged from every political spectrum to bring them diversity of thought. Diversity is not just skin deep. It's about diversity of ideas and thought. This is Zudi Jasner. We'll be right back on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. People, people forget that. People forget that you you know you can't move. Right. You know what? You don't have to live there. I don't like rocks and I don't like dust and I don't like sand and cactus and casinos. Vegas, change all of this stuff. Get rid of it all. Come on, man. Don't move to Vegas. Exactly. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's just punctuate the conversation about the Duke University experience. Um, You know, my kids are getting towards that age now in which in the next few years they're going to be thinking about colleges and even starting college soon. And I have to think about how I turned out the way I did. Part of it was my upbringing from parents who taught me that Islam, my faith, my relationship with God is very personal, should not be part of the debate publicly that collectivizes communities politically, that this country is united under God, but not under one flavor of any religion, and that ultimately the most important part of faith is integrity, honesty, morality, values, and our ethos, our ethics. And I hope I teach my children the same thing. And, and I took that philosophy to school and dove into my studies looking at questioning everything I could. And I hope that the university experience that my children have teaches them that same thing, not what's right and wrong. I think they'll get that from their own studies, from their own family, from their own superego and conscience. Uh, But I hope ultimately as they learn more and question more that they expose themselves to 
varieties of opinion and not feel that somehow they must target an individual because of what somebody else says about them. Meet them, hear them. And the amazing thing is, if my words, compare the toxicity of what was said about my words to the Duke University students by their newspapers, by their Muslim Student Association, by groups like the Alexander Hamilton Society that didn't say anything against me, actually sponsored the event only to then pull out with apologies that they offended the Muslim students and were apologetic that in some way they felt bad about their own faith. With no evidence basis to that, no uh, um, demonstration of somehow of, of quoting video clips of me uh, chanting anything that would be demonstrable of the rhetoric that was said about me. And now, to add reality to it, which again has been proven, I left campus and the Muslim Student Association and all those who decried the fear and mongering that was the hate mongering that was coming to campus, silence. Do you actually think that if somebody as bigoted as what they were saying was going to be said had come and spoken on campus that there would be no footage from my talk that could be used to say I told you so? Where's that footage? Where's the I told you so from the Muslim Student Association? And did I change? I would defy them. They may say, well, he modified his speech to placate the pressure we put on him. Well, this anti-Islamist mantra, the, the tough love that I talk about, the, the religiousness of it, the approach as a laity, which they mocked, in which they told their readers and others that I was just a regressive doctor, cardiologist, or whatever they, they, they misappropriated to me. I'm an internist and a medical ethicist not a cardiologist, as they identified it. Now, and yet, nothing post-talk. And I think that speaks to the fact that when left to real debate of real ideas, they wither and sleek away with their tail between their legs. And this is the problem with the Islamists. So, as you think about your kids in universities, or many of you who may be in universities listening to this, or looking for universities, or just finished and early in the workforce. We need to be honest with each other. We need to not just tar and feather folks, <laughs> but actually engage them in substantive areas of disagreement, because there's so much that we do disagree on that we have to find common ground to work from. But also, how do we expect our youth to mature and to gain values that we share and find common ground with if we demonize folks that may be role models. Now, I'm not saying that, that my history is something that would be a role model for all, or the dichotomy that I presented to them, patriot versus insurgent, is something that every Muslim would adapt to, but I do think there's a role to be played in juxtaposing those things. That a lot of the bigotry that's happening in America could melt away if they saw more role models of Muslims that were patriots. So there is a reason to talk about that dichotomy because those two polar opposites can serve to start to create role models of American Muslims that are not just the victimologists, that are not just the, the we deserve and we demand to be Americans, but people that are humbly Americans that want to die for this country. 
either serve in the military, serve in the fi- uh, as firefighters, police officers, civil servants, whatever it may be. Those need to be the role models of our American Muslims. So I hope that's something that we get out of this conversation that we had at Duke University. More universities to come. I'm speaking at Notre Dame in a couple weeks. And the topic this time, we'll see how much backlash it brings, is taking on the Islamist establishment. Taking on the Islamist establishment. What is the Islamist establishment? I thought that would be a great title, thinking that going to a Catholic university and the institutions of higher learning and the Christian religious world, the Jewish religious world, have gone through a major metamorphosis over the past 500 to 1,000 years, and especially in the last two to 300 years here in the West. And where is the Islamist establishment? We're going to talk about that in Notre Dame on April 23rd, I believe, and I'll talk to you about how that goes, and we'll see what kind of backlash that gets. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is this week, Noor Salman, the wife of Omar Mateen, the Orlando ISIS terrorist who killed 49, I believe, and then was killed himself, who made that harrowing 911 call that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand that the FBI wouldn't even release initially because the president wouldn't allow them to release it, and ultimately he declared allegiance to ISIS. Well, his wife was standing trial for, among other things, was she aiding and abetting terrorism? Did she know about the attack? And she was found innocent. Not guilty. Not guilty of the charges this week. And, you know, I have to tell you, it's interesting. The Muslim Legal Fund and a number of other organizations came out congratulating the jury for the result of the trial. And I think, you know, you look at some of their points and they're well taken. If anything, they point out that it should educate Americans about and educate our community about the impact of domestic violence and how entrapped it puts some people in which they can't do anything. And I think that is exceedingly true. And I don't want my criticism here to minimize the prison, the imprisonment that happens to many women who are true, true, truly victims of heinous, barbaric Neanderthals like Omar Mateen, many of the Neanderthals in Saudi Arabia and Iran, on and on, millions of men who abuse and torture and enslave women under the rubric of fundamentalist Sharia law. The jury foreman in the case of Noura Salman, the wife of the Pulse nightclub shooter, said, we were convinced she did know. This is what he said. He said, we were convinced she did know. She may not have known what day or what location, but she knew. However, we were not tasked, as a jury, with deciding if she was aware of a potential attack. The charges were aiding and abetting and obstruction of justice. Aiding and abetting and obstruction of justice. The bottom line is that based on the letter of the law and the detailed Instructions provided by the court we were presented with no option but to return a verdict of not guilty. So the jury followed the law. So my question to you, should the law be changed? Because 
There's no doubt that she knew. How much pressure, how much punishment, how much accountability should we give as a society to family members that know? Take it away from the Islamist issue. Let's talk about, let's say, spouses of or loved ones of the Parkland shooter killed all those that horrific shooting of those children at Parkland School at the school in Parkland, Florida or any of the mass shootings that were not related to Islamist terror that have happened in the United States in the last few years what is the accountability to people that would know and do not report for whatever reason fear, unknowing, whatever it might be now We've seen that the FBI and the schools and security often, even when they get information, don't act on it. So even giving the information sometimes doesn't then equate to actually doing something about it. But still is an obligation, and I hope there's accountability and repercussions for the fact that there were many steps along the way in which the schools found out, security found out, police found out, phone calls were made to the FBI, etc. that were not acted on. And I hope they also are punished for not acting on it because they sh- skirted their responsibility. And I think there's a big case to be made that a lot of lives were lost because of it. And how many times the, the Fort Hood shooting been talked about and we saw here's a radical islamist wearing an army uniform walking around walter reed with a card that says soldier of allah and we were too afraid because of so many reasons including political correctness to do anything about it big problem so maybe the law needs to be changed maybe it needs to be made tighter so that americans realize that there's a community responsibility to report clear and unmistakable warnings of an attack that's imminent and going to be planned. See something, say something is not just a suggestion. It's a mandate. It's a mandate. So I think my personal opinion is that the jury probably ruled correctly based on what the foreman said and the instructions they were given, but maybe those laws need to be made clearer and less fungible. And then the rest of the community will start to be more aware. Because we see, for example, in November 2015, the Paris terror attacks, that same cell committed an act of terror in Belgium in March 2016. And yet, I believe there were two militants that then traveled from France to Belgium to commit a second act. And there's no way that they hid from the authorities, hid from transportation, photos and other things that people knew about them, and yet they weren't found. Why? Because they were being, I believe, and I think we found many arrests after which that show that they were being hidden by some of the community, some of their Islamist community. So those laws need to be tightened. I don't know if Nur Salman's, Nur Salman's, Uh, verdict is a sign of that but I do believe it's a sign that we need to look deeper into if she truly knew how do we hold them accountable to that 
And you don't see any of that verbiage coming out of any Islamic groups in the post-jury decision conversation is that, no, CARE after the San Bernardino shooting was representing the families and others of them saying that they were being unfairly targeted, etc. And how do they always get so close to families that happen to know these folks? I mean, that's a whole other question, but it seems to be swimming in the same pool, doesn't it? The Islamist pool, whether it's violent or nonviolent. So I think similarly, we need to begin to look at some of the laws that I think need to be tightened about accountability and responsibility and reporting. This is Udi Jasper on Reform This. We'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being with me. Uh, I want to jump to, there's been a lot of talk this week about Syria, much more than usual. Why? President Trump seemed to, oh, by the way, mention uh, he's going to make sure we get out of there as soon as possible. And naturally, that was consistent with a lot of what he said in the campaign, so it wasn't a surprise to some of his positions. It was a surprise, though, to those following rationally what he has given Secretary Mattis the DOD, and military strategists and our courageous few thousand troops and jets and other things of our military complex that have decimated 98% of the caliphate within six months and now almost a year, but six months probably in which we've been engaged completely in it, Secretary Mattis has made sure that ISIS is completely decimated. Now, Putin and Assad are taking credit, but there's no doubt that they have had absolutely no interest in ever ending ISIS's existence. In fact, left to their own devices, they would allow it to grow and thrive as Assad continued his military genocidal campaign against the Sunni population, against the rebellion, and against the, the bigger existential threat to his existence, which are the moderate rebellion but now we're seeing pieces from many in the political armchair think tank policy world sitting in ivory towers in america talking about oh we had daniel de petris and the national interest saying it's time to accept that assad is not going anywhere and he goes on to lay out the case which is not too hard to make that the rebellion is so fractionated that ultimately Assad is more powerful than he's been in quite a while. And that then you have the Max Boots of the world continuing to, to sit by while he was hawkish for many years on overthrowing Assad. Now has said that more lives will be lost if we push forward and that ultimately they should lay down their weapons and go back home and less lives will be lost. And I have to tell you that what does that mean? It's time to accept that Assad is not going anywhere. When did it become America's moral role to accept or not accept what a revolution is doing? There's a revolution nascent one growing in Iran. Does the hope of the revolution in Iran 
as I talked to you a couple weeks ago, how how morally courageous it was for President Trump's letter of support on Nauru's on March 21st to the revolution in which there's very little hope for it. And yet he put a letter of support because we believe in the values of the revolution of Iran, with the Green Revolution and the newest revolution against the theocracy that is there. Whether there's hope for it or not, that is those are our real allies, the millions of women on the streets, the, the, the liberals, uh, the, the free thinkers. The theocrats will never be anyone we say, except that they're not going anywhere. Now, if that means certain policy changes, which policy changes are we talking about? Would we ever say, oh, let's look at how we can support Kim Jong-un in North Korea because he's not going anywhere. I hope the CIA and others in one of the most difficult countries to penetrate since they basically have very little use of, of uh, any type of technology that is open, that we would help, that the best national security plan would be the overthrow and the growth of a revolution in North Korea, as it would be in any major military dictatorship that is against our values. So. It's one thing to say that the realpolitik is that we deal with dictators in which there's no revolution, like the king of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince, even Iran, when we have to figure out what do we do. We abandon the deal, but yet we have to hold them accountable. How do we do that? So the realpolitik of diplomacy makes sense because we're not going to declare war on these countries. That would be absurd. But when they have real revolutions that have sacrificed six, seven hundred thousand lives, half of their population displaced, it is an insult to everything America stands for. Not to continue saying that we do not recognize the Assad regime or the Ba'ath leadership. And that we never will any longer because they are no longer legitimate. Because if we start saying that he's not going anywhere, there is not that much light between that statement and Hillary Clinton's statement from 2009 that said Assad is a reformer, 2006 or 7, whenever that was. Now you may say, oh, that's not what we're saying. We're just saying deal with the dictator. No. We can deal with him by calling for international courts to try him as we did Milosevic upon his defeat, and now he's serving life. Or was he should be put to death for that. I can't remember what actually happened to him, but at the end of the day, he certainly was convicted of those crimes. Same thing with Assad and his leadership. There are a, a, a sundry of war crimes, including the use of chemical weapons, that articles that talk about and speeches that talk about accepting Assad as not going anywhere is basically accepting his method of war as having been legitimate, and he as a leader is being legitimate, and we cannot do that. We made that mistake across the Middle East in the 20th century. Saddam used chemical weapons, and then we even helped them in the war against Iran. And then we realized that we had to take him out because of his weapons of mass destruction that I believe some of which now found their way to Syria and have been used repeatedly against the Syrian people. We can debate what you believe about the reality of the Syrian war, the reality of the Iraq war, 
It's obvious that President Trump believes that we should pull our troops out, but that would be disastrous. So this is the problem with the sense of isolationism, the sense that military solutions never work without civilian solutions following them. And we never really had a strategy in the Middle East. We didn't have a, uh, a, a method of winning the peace. We knew how to win the war, but not how to win the peace. And without a strategy winning the peace, uh, building civil society, working with anti-jihadists and those who share our ideals, we are going to continue this whack-a-mole cycle in which we pull out, jihadists rise up, military dictators are legitimated, and then we end up going back to have to fight them again. The cycle repeats on and on, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Dictatorship, Islamist militants, we fight. Dictatorship, Islamist militant, we fight. If you want to get out of that cycle, it's not called nation building, it's called the spread of ideas of freedom and liberty against autocracy, kleptocracy, monarchy, and theocracy especially. Those despotic ideas, those tyrannical ideas, will only go away when we begin a more concerted effort. It may mean more money. It may mean more investment, but not lives. We don't need to be sending our sons and daughters to fight those wars abroad because there are nascent revolutions that just need platforms, need some protection, need a little bit of military support as we've been doing in Syria. It's not going to need major deployments. So I think President Trump can save face by not saying we need 40,000, 50,000 troops like we needed in Afghanistan, but just a few thousand to maintain areas and pockets of Syrian democratic forces that continue to tell Assad, tell Putin, and tell the Khomeinis that you can't build missiles on the borders of Israel, and Hezbollah will not threaten Israel as long as we are there, and that ultimately our strategy is limited but not absent, because in the absence of American presence, those vacuums are filled by the worst in society. The worst. This is Udi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. Like you have $100 to pay for my dinner plus yours? No. Everybody knows that's not true. No, I didn't say I paid for mine. <laughs> Somebody else who saw you across the way uh, paid for yours, right? So you decided. No, I paid for yours and I just bolted. Uh, okay. Paid for All right. What restaurant was it? You know, the place that I take my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, which is where? I can't say that out loud. I don't want people to know where I go. And we're finding out. Yeah. The wife was busy. Pat Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. And the last segment of our 100th episode on Reform This. You know, the last thing I wanted to end on this week is there's been a lot to do about this interminable trip of Mohammed bin Salman, who I think is entering his third week of his Magical Mystery Kingdom tour. Yes, the Magic Kingdom. The kingdom that seems to, all of a sudden, with a little tour and millions of dollars of PR, and, yep, 
he closed the entire Four Seasons Hotel for his little entourage to visit Silicon Valley. And uh, there's no end to the opulence, the uh, complete uh, bizarre ostentatiousness of MBS and his house of Saud, his house of uh, theocracy, uh, his house of tribalism that uh, thinks that they can come and pull the wool over America's eyes and all of a sudden pretend to be something that they're not. Uh, King Salman and uh, your crown prince uh, don't have us fooled here in the United States. Well, maybe they do. You look at the media, you just can't buy PR like that. And the latest, the latest scam he's shown, the latest scam he's shown is that uh, ultimately he has presented himself as now recognizing Israel. Now I have to say of all of my skepticism, this one's the least skeptical. I think it's believable. Uh, he made a statement uh, with the Haaretz uh, uh, quoting him. He said, I believe the Palestinians and the Israelis have a right to their own homeland, but we have to have a peace agreement to assure the stability for everyone and to have normal relations. Saudi Arabia's birthplace and uh, is the birthplace of Islam, and he went on to say that Israel has a right to be recognized, which I think it's about time Saudi Arabia made that recognition. I think it's not new. It's new to an American audience. Uh, but if you look at what's been happening in the Middle East as Iran uh, has been trying to hegemonize its influence into Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, Saudi Arabia has already had a number of backdoor uh, diplomatic channel meetings with Israel. And I would imagine during those meetings... It would not be far-fetched to assume that they've been predicated on Saudi Arabia finally ending its long-time uh, part of a rejection of the recognition of the state of Israel. Now, here's the thing. A recognition of the state of Israel by the leading hypocrites of the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is the Neo-Caliphate, does not make it so. What would make it so... Why does the Saudi Arabians, why does the Saudi tribe not recognize Israel? Because it's part of their theology. It's part of the Wahhabi anti-Semitism. It's part of the hate that they teach. So, on the one hand, the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom has repeatedly, repeatedly told them that they need to modify their texts and take out the anti-Semitism and the hate that's become such a part of their culture. On the other hand, you just can't remove it by whiting it out, by taking out the sentences that are obviously anti-Semitic. They must have a shift towards a culture of equality, a culture of theological recognition that Islam is not the only pathway to God, that Christians are monotheistic, believe in the God of Abraham, that Jews are monotheistic, come from the same tradition, and that they are not given their rights from Islam, but from God, from the same God we worship, and that ultimately they should not have to live in an Islamic state, that there should be rights to the building of synagogues and churches in Saudi Arabia, on and on, which would make it a reality. So the recognition of Israel needs to be followed, if it's true, with a recognition of where that denial comes from. It doesn't just come from the politics of the Israeli-Palestinian situation. It comes from the theology of Wahhabism. So, I'll believe the little 32-year-old prince, the spoiled prince, when he backs it up with Wahhabi clerics who recognize the Quranic 
interpretation that recognizes the state of Israel. When he backs it up with fatwas, religious rulings, religious legal jurisprudence that then says the state of Israel has legitimacy, the state of Israel should be recognized as a democracy. That there is no theological barrier to recognizing the state of Israel. And then recognizing all of the other aspects that reject and I think should circumscribe that part of the Quran, especially the chapter 5, that does talk sometimes quite critically about a Jewish tribe in which ultimately the Muslim community had a war against. But modernizing and reforming those ideas is not too difficult. You can do that by saying it only applies to that one tribe, it only applies to that one period of time and does not apply now into the 21st century. But none of that theology, none of that interpretation was part of the conversation. And what I'm saying was proven because then his his good old dad, King Salman, called for Jerusalem. Just a few days later, called for Jerusalem to be the capital of Palestine. And a renewed process after the Israeli security forces had their conflict with the Palestinians this week at the Israeli-Gaza border. He reiterated Saudi Arabia's support for the Palestinian state even after the heir to his throne had seemed to be making a contradictory ruling. The king also emphasized the need to advance the peace process as the Heretz reports and he reaffirmed the kingdom's steadfast position towards the Palestinian issue and the legitimate rights of the Palestinian people to an independent state with Jerusalem as its capital. So, how are they going to wash that with the recent American position that American America, finally, through our president, has recognized what has long been standing American bipartisan policy, that Israel should have the right to identify its own capital, the capital where it's Knesset, its court system, Supreme Court, its... Uh, agencies and cabinet all are, which is Jerusalem, West Jerusalem. So the theology needs to follow. The courage of their convictions needs to follow. And none of that seems to be happening. So don't be fooled. Is it taqiyya? Taqiyya theologically is a deception that typically came from a Shia tradition in which they were horrifically persecuted by the Sunnis, so they became uh, deceptive about whether they were Shia and pretended to be Sunni. But at the bottom of the day, dissimulation, which I think is a better interpretation of a, a lying face, if you will, we saw that in many characters in the Middle East, be it Sunni or Shia, in which they pretended to be something they're not. They pretended to compromise and behind the scenes, they would say they did it so that later when they're more powerful, they can then take it back. In the political realm, that may be received as pandering, but it's basically dishonesty. So I would ask you, before you, you jump to Harold MBS as a reformer, you take a look really if he really has the courage of a conviction and if it's being followed by all the other aspects that would demonstrate that is his recognition of Israel followed by theological defense, by theological mea copas about 
all of the backup of anti-Semitism, of anti-Zionism, and rejection of the state of Israel that often is bolstered by Quranic interpretations, by Hadith interpretations, and others. Now, I've, as you've heard on this program many episodes before, I feel that the contrary is true, that ultimately as a religious Muslim you can recognize the state of Israel, not only because every legitimate country in the world does, especially us in the free world, recognize the democracy of Israel, but additionally it's rational to do so. So, I can't wait to this magical mystery tour of MBS is done. Go back to Saudi Arabia, please. We've had it with your PR. I've had enough news stories about uh, your reforms and uh, talk about shifting from an oil and defense industry-based government to now he's meeting with Amazon, he's met with Bezos and met with Google and uh, Intel and all these other technology companies because he's trying to bring Saudi Arabia into 2030 as a technology giant. Okay, so who's going to be... You can pay for all this technology if you want, but who's going to be the innovators in your country where you have 90% of the Saudi citizens employed by your government doing no innovation but simply on the payroll and doing nothing other than maybe part of your oil, petrochemical technology, but that's about it? You can't just take and pay for technology to come into Saudi Arabia without having the workforce educated and driven by free market stimulation of the fruit of creativity and ingenuity. And there is no ingenuity in Saudi Arabia, as demonstrated by their lack of any products that originated from Saudi consciousness. They need to open up the free markets, desocialize their system, and you'll find that once they're no longer dependent on petrochemical and dependent on the ingenuity of their people, the society will change deeply. And they will begin to mean what they say. But I won't hold my breath. It'll need a revolution. A revolution. Thanks again for listening. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll catch you next week. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network.